We're coming up on the end of uh, our journey through the books of First and Second Samuel. We're going to begin chapter 21 this morning. It's on page 274, the portion of chapter 21 that we'll be in if you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your, in your seats. And we've seen that uh, God has given uh, these books to His people to encourage them to place their hope, their confidence, their allegiance in the King that God has chosen, that He has set over them. Uh, We saw that at first the people rejected God as their king and wanted a king like the nations, Saul. God rejected him and placed a king of his own choosing over the people, a man after his own heart, David. But God promised that from David one would come who would bring his eternal and everlasting kingdom, who would rule and reign forever. And that person is, is clear from the New Testament that that is Jesus of Nazareth. God who took on flesh to rule and reign over His people forever. Um, As uh, God's uh, people today, we are reading these uh, books of the Old Testament um, uh, informed by where we exist and where we live in God's unfolding plan of salvation. We are looking back on the coming of the Promised One. Uh, we have a different perspective and, and a deeper understanding. Things were only dimly clear to uh, some of them in the Old Testament, as we'll see this morning. Uh, but it, we can still, as God's people, as we read these Old Testament narratives, where God is informing and teaching His people about what it looks like to follow the King that He has placed, it's still applicable and necessary for us to learn, because we are the people of God. We are ruled by a king who was appointed by our God, Jesus. So, as God's people, we go to God's Word to learn what He would call us and how He would call us to live in light of the fact that He has placed His king on the throne. So, let's look at uh, first, or, or Second Samuel chapter 21. We're going to look at verses uh, 15 through 22 this morning. Like I said, that's on page 274 if you follow along in one of the Bibles there in the pews. Let's hear from the Word of God. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sebekai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jair uh, Oragim, the Bethlehemite, uh, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath. Uh, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemai, uh, David's brother, struck him down. 
These four were descendants from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Let's pray. God, we thank You that as Your people, You have given us Your Word. We know that left to uh, our own, we cannot understand and discern what You would have us know, what You've communicated. Uh, We pray, Holy Spirit, that You would be at work opening up our eyes, giving us ears to hear and hearts to believe and hope in what You communicate and how You reveal Yourself to us from Your Word. Please do that this morning through Your living and active and powerful Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Kids, if uh, you want to draw some pictures this morning, there's going to be the account of four giant men that uh, have our enemies of God and His people, and they come to their end in this passage. So you can, if you want to, you can choose one of them to draw a picture of the battle that happens, or you can give me four pictures, one of each of those guys, and we'll, uh, once we get our, our uh, picture string over there back attached to the wall, we'll hang them, hang them up. Um, so uh, in this, this passage, over the past several weeks, uh, we've encountered a lot of, of what David has been doing, his actions, what, uh, what's been occurring, or his sons rebelling against him. In this passage, uh, we're uh, encountering uh, some of David's followers, some men that of only one of them we've really heard much about. Uh, and it's going to give us uh, a time and an opportunity to, to think about and consider as we view the response and the perspectives of these servants of God's King, how does it inform us, who are also servants of the King, how we are to live? How we are to to perceive God and His world and our place in it? So, uh, hopefully, as we do this, we're going to realize and see that we're going to move from the lesser... David, to the greater, Jesus. How does that inform our living and our life now that the promised one has come? First, let's notice the perspective that these followers of the king, the perspective that they have on the limitations of the king. You notice how that comes out in this passage? Look back up in verse 15. There was war again with the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. David, the giant slayer. David, the man who people used to sing songs. Saul has slayed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. The mighty warrior, the protector, the deliverer of God's people but he has limitations. We don't know exactly when this happened in his life. Was it as David was getting older and his age is starting to to evidence himself? 
Is it just the, 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 the weight and the burden of all this fleeing and all this battling from inside the people of God and outside of the people of God that's wearing on him? But we see and recognize that David, this human king, is limited. His strength is not infinite. He's not all-powerful. He has grown weary. And this giant man, Ishbi Benob, comes and sees this as an opportunity to take David out. Notice that's his thoughts in verse 16. He was armed with this giant spear and a new sword, and he thought to kill David. But notice what it says, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Not only are they recognizing the limitations of David's strength, but they're also, they recognize and perceive the limitations of David's life. It's possible that this David, that we've given our allegiance and our hope and our trust in, that he'll die. That, that language, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but the lamp of Israel was figurative language to describe and talk about the king, the one who was on the throne. It could be quenched. You can die, David. Don't you realize how close that was? And so what did they decide? Their response to perceiving the limitations of this king the limits he has in his strength, the limits he has in his life, what do they decide? Notice, look back at what they say. David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. They recognize and they realize, whoa, you are not without limits, David. You could die. And what will that mean? So what they decide and determine is that whatever they need to do, they're going to do to make sure that their king does not die. But because a king with limits, if he dies, that'll be the end. Sounds very similar to the perspective of Jesus' followers much later who have a very similar response because the, the way and the eyes with which they are looking and perceiving and looking at Jesus, what they think is death will be the end of it. Because we have this conception of this human king who has limits and we must do what is necessary to keep you from dying. You must not die, David. You must not die, Jesus. In fact, that's what they say. Look over in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew was one of uh, Jesus' authorized followers and spokespersons. One that Jesus revealed himself to and who re records for us here this account of Jesus' life and teachings. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus is trying to teach His disciples, His followers, 
about what he has come to do and what it will look like for the kingdom to come. And listen to what he says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, Peter's one of his followers, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You can't die. There is no way. Peter has just professed when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. That is Old Testament language that Peter is drawing up. Of the anointed one. You are the king. The lamp of Israel that God has promised. There is no way that you can die. Just like David's men said, when we see the limitations of our king, we will do what is necessary and we will take a vow. You will not go out in battle with us, David, because you must not die. And Jesus now says here, in order for the kingdom to come and the battle that I am facing, I will die. And Peter says it must not happen. And he rebukes Jesus. Notice what Jesus says. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, if maybe if, if Jesus had been just a mere man, Peter's response would have been understandable. But Jesus isn't, is he? Jesus is no mere man. In fact, as Jesus is speaking later, In the book of John, in John 10, Jesus says this about himself, his power over his life. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. See what Jesus is saying? He has, indeed, the ability to die. Our God has taken on flesh. He humbled Himself. The Creator and Maker of all things became a creature for His people, but so that He could die. But notice... Jesus doesn't have the limits David has. Ishbi Benob could have taken David out. And he would have taken David's life. But here Jesus says, I am the one with the authority. No one, no one can take my life unless I lay it down. I am the one who is giving my life. And not only do I have the power and the ability to give it, I have the power and the ability to raise it up again. Our God has taken on flesh, but He has no limits like David did. He has conquered and He has defeated death. In fact, Paul, another one of Jesus' Spokespersons would write later in the book of Romans that death no longer has any power over him. Why? Because he defeated it. He conquered it. 
through his death and resurrection. The disciples, from their perception and their perspective, the death of the king means the end. But from our perspective, looking back, what do we recognize? That God's chosen king, his promised one, is God himself, who has taken on flesh. And death, death is not the end. Death of our king is the path to salvation and victory and deliverance and the defeat of every single one of our enemies. We must have the right perspective. But also, notice, as we're back over in 2 Samuel 21, we see these followers of the king had this certain perspectives on the limitations of the king. But also notice we see they have some perspectives on the provision of God. First, notice there in 17, what does men call David? They swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us into battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. The lamp of Israel. This is language that's describing and talking about God's king. Later in other books, this same language would come up. Uh, later in the book of Second Kings, listen to what is described as God is talking about the purification and judgment that He brings to His uh, His the, 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 uh, the discipline that He brings to His people. From Second Kings chapter eight, listen to what God says. Verse 19, Yet Yahweh was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. See, this gives us perspective and insight. It, it, it seems like the, the men that were following David, they had some perception and understanding of God's provision of a king for his people. But maybe what they failed to, to fully grasp and understand is that this king that God provided was one who would rule and who would reign forever. No mere man could do this. We've seen a mere man would lose his life. And that would be the end of it. But God has promised to send a king who will rule and who will reign over his people forever. Here, they at least have their perspective and their understanding that this king that we are following is the king that God has placed over us. These aren't the promises that he gave to Saul, whom the people set up over themselves. No, the perspective that we need to have and understand on the king that we follow must be the king that God has promised to set up over his people and over his kingdom as the one who will rule and who will reign forever. But also notice, their understanding of God's provision is not just that God provides a king, but he also provides land. Here, it's, and this has constantly come up, these attacks and these battles with the Philistines, the Philistines, the Philistines, over and over again. Uh, here, this language that comes up as it's designating the Philistines, but it also talks about uh, these, each of these guys that 
David and his, his men are fighting are giants. Uh, this language uh, comes from a, a people group that's mentioned in Genesis called the Rephaim, who were a people who dwelled in the promised land that God had given Abraham. God said that He was going in and He was giving the land to His people, not because they were so good and they were so great, but He was bringing His judgment on the people who dwelled in the land for their rebellion and their rejection of Him as their Creator and their God and their King. Here, this is, as we see, David's men, they're... They're going out and they're battling these giant men. You remember how the people of Israel responded when they first entered into the land and saw the former descendant, the, the, the descendants of these guys? They were afraid. They said, we are like grasshoppers before these guys. There is no way that we're going to be able to go in this land and take it. You see, their perspective as they're looking at the trouble and the difficulty and the struggle before him, whether he's got a giant spear or extra fingers or toes, these guys have their mind and their heart set on God's provision to provide the land for his people and that God will battle for them. In fact, here we see each of these Giants come to their end. See God's provision of a king, God's provision of land, but also notice here, provision of people. It's not just David fighting here, is it? It's, there's other men who were mentioned this time. Abishai, he's been ready to kill somebody for about 15 chapters, it seems. David finally lets him do it. But then here it comes Sebekai, the Hushathite, who struck down Saph, another one of the enemies to God and his people. Then later, Elhanan, the son of Jerah or Agim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite. Uh, here we need to make sure that we don't confuse this Goliath for the one that has already been uh, told us in 1 Samuel that David killed. It's clear David was the one who struck down that particular Goliath. There's two things that's going on here. Either this is another guy also named Goliath uh, who dwelled uh, from Gath. That's what Gittite is. Or uh, the parallel account of this in First uh, uh, Chronicles tells us that who this guy actually was was Goliath's brother. But either way, we see Elhanan, too, is trusting in uh, the Lord and moving forward and seeing that there's a proper response that God's people have to bringing and seeing the kingdom come about. Notice again, another guy is mentioned. Uh, um, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, goes out and strikes this unnamed uh, 24 digited fellow down. Uh, but notice what they're recognizing. They don't just sit back and say, David's the only one who's supposed to go out and fight. What they're recognizing is their understanding of the provision of God, the one who has promised the king, he has given us this king, he has promised us this land, but also the response of God's people is to recognize that we also are participants 
in the coming of this kingdom that our God has pronounced. They move forward in faith, confident that their God will bring about everything that he has promised, giving their allegiance to the king of his own choosing. Think about it for us today. We live in a different time. Jesus doesn't need us to protect him. None of us are called to be Abishai's who jump in with our swords and need to protect Jesus from his death. Peter tried to be that guy. He wasn't as skillful as Abishai. He got an ear and that was it. And then Jesus put it back on. The end of Peter's wartime. But we still participate. Part of our understanding of who we are as the people of God is recognizing that we have been saved. And we've talked about this before. We've been saved from something. We've been saved from our sin. We've been saved from our rebellion and our enslavement to doing our own thing. We've been saved to something. We've been saved into a relationship with the Creator of all things. And we've been saved for something. What is that for? Participation in his great work of rescue and restoration. Peter would say, you have been redeemed and saved that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you from darkness into light. We see Paul communicated in this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He puts it in this, with this language. Uh, if, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So again, remember, to be in Christ is to be a member of the people that Jesus represents. He is the Christ. He is the King. What does it therefore mean to be those who have given your allegiance to the King? Well, listen. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with Him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. You see what's going on? We no longer are those who are uh, geared up in battle and who demonstrate our allegiance to our king by pursuing and battling flesh and blood. No, but we still have a role to play. We have been, as God reconciled us to himself, as he brought us into his kingdom now, the provision that God has given to us, his people, is to further and expand His kingdom through the proclamation and announcement of the good news of the gospel. You can be reconciled to God in Christ. We are His ambassadors. He is working through us 
and we are working with him. Notice, from their perspective, if David is the promised king, the one that God has said, there will always be a lamp from the line of David who rules on the throne, and this kingdom is coming, then we must give our allegiance to him and work and labor to see that this kingdom comes forth. Jesus is much greater than David. And if that was the case for them, how much more so for us? That as we recognize that the one that God has promised sits on the throne now. He died to deliver us. He rose from the dead. He is the victorious one. Should we also not want to be those who proclaim and announce and want to see the expanding and moving forward of this kingdom to see people come into and be brought in to the kingdom of our Lord and our Christ. This is the call that we have as God's people. What does it look like for us to be those who give our allegiance to the King? It's to participate in the work of His kingdom expansion. To be those ministers of reconciliation. To be those who, who share and long for those who are outside of the kingdom to come to know our God and our King who gave Himself for us. We are part of the provision that God has given and the means through which He works to bring His kingdom about. We've seen so far the perspective that these followers of God's King have had on the limitations of the King on the provisions of their God. But lastly, look at their perspective on the sacrifice that might be called upon for God's people. Notice, these men that we encounter here in this passage, if they're called to be those who seek the expansion of God's kingdom, they recognize that the time may come for them to need to give their lives, their life for the king, their life for the kingdom. Notice each of these guys who are mentioned. Abishai jumps in, this guy who almost killed David. Abishai is ready to give his life. He is ready to die for his king. These other men that are mentioned, Sebekai, Elhanan, and Jonathan, they too are ready to give their lives for the sake of the kingdom. They're not there battling right there defending David's life, but they're understanding the promises that God has given, and they want to see the expansion of the kingdom of the living God fill the earth. And they're willing to give their lives for the sake of their king. Think about the perspective of the disciples. Jesus' followers, they spoke with big mouths that they understood and recognized who Jesus was. But when the time came, when Jesus was surrounded with men with clubs and swords to take him down, Peter had one fell swoop of boldness, it would seem. But what happened in the end? None of them were willing to sacrifice their life for their king or for the kingdom. 
and they ran. One guy was so afraid, he ran away naked. As they grabbed onto his cloak, that's all he had on, and he fled. There is no way that I will give my life and sacrifice for the king or the kingdom. It's not worth it. But something changes. Because these same disciples, every single one of them that fled and ran from him in the garden, later in the book of Acts, it tells us that the disciples are proclaiming and preaching the good news of the message of the kingdom of Jesus. And the religious leaders come and imprison them and beat them and tell them not to proclaim Jesus anymore. These guys suffer for Jesus at that point. Not only that, when they get out of prison and Jesus releases them, what is on their mouths are words of praise and thanksgiving. And guess what they're thankful for? That they were considered worthy to suffer for His name. What would change? What would change from those who would flee and abandon Jesus to be those who would proclaim and worship Him that they would be considered worthy to suffer for Him? They would see it as a privilege to give their lives for the sake of King Jesus. It's that they realized and they recognized who He was. Because what happened in between those times was the resurrection Jesus demonstrated that He was the one who had come with power and authority. Jesus pours out His Spirit on these apostles who have now the strength and the enablement from their God to give the sacrifice that they're called to as they recognize and understand the value and the surpassing worth of Jesus, the King, and of God's kingdom. Notice, back to the guys who are battling for David. David is a limited, mere human man who's full of sin, we've seen, who fails to shepherd his his family well, his people well, but they're willing to give their lives for him and for that kingdom. From the lesser to the greater. If that's the case for David... Should that not be more so the case for us? In Laos, a couple of weeks ago, a man named Cam, a member of the small, small Christian church there in Laos, was proclaiming and sharing the good news of the message of the gospel. And the police found out about it. And they came and day after day harassed Cam. They said, you need to quit talking about Jesus and you need to turn and give your allegiance to, uh, to the, the gods of the Laotian pantheist view that they had. They said, if you don't, we are going to continue to make your life hard and we are going to make it miserable. And Cam recognizing the surpassing worth of Jesus, the King, and His kingdom continued to proclaim and speak and teach the message of Christ. Several years ago, there were eight Pakistani uh, believers who were traveling north 
in, in Pakistan. Uh, they needed to get some, uh, they had a flat tire. They were changing their tire and recognized the region they were in was uh, predominantly Muslim controlled and was suffering and struggling uh, with drug addiction and, uh, and, um, and sickness and illness and depression. And they went in and they began to proclaim the good news of the message of Christ to these villagers and people were coming to faith in Jesus until the religious secret police showed up. And they imprisoned them. For 52 days, five of them were in jail. And they beat them daily and said, if you do not denounce Jesus as your king and profess allegiance to Allah, we will beat you and we will ultimately kill you. And they said, do what you want. Jesus is our king. After 52 days, they actually released them. They put bags over their head, drove them out into the middle of nowhere, and let them out. They thought they were surely going to die, but they ended up not. No gunshots were fired. They were just abandoned. You know what they did? They continued to move forward, sharing and proclaiming and preaching the good news of the message of Jesus. They recognized the value of the king, the value of the kingdom, that they would be considered worthy to suffer for His name and would move forward to continue to share the good news of the message of Christ? What about us? You might not find yourself with a, a potato sack over your head or a gun pressed to your back, but it might look like this. It might mean that uh, when you are in your classroom and you're teacher asks a question about how things were created or what is intended for the sexuality of humans, and you speak up and communicate and share what the Scriptures teach and what your King has said, and it may mean that you suffer ridicule. It may mean that you suffer shame. It may mean that uh, you get a question marked wrong on your test. Is it worth that kind of suffering and sacrifice for our king? It may mean that as you are working in your job and the industry standards, so-called, that people do uh, would mean that you fudge the numbers a little bit. It may mean that you take people to certain establishments to get uh, a close on a deal or to get um, uh, the account at a certain business and you say, I'm not going to do it. Your numbers suffer. You don't produce as much. Maybe you don't get the promotion. But is it worth that for the sake of Jesus, your King? It may mean that as you profess faith in Christ and you share the Gospel with your family, uh, that your father or your mother who did not, who does not know Jesus uh, and who thinks you are uh, uh, abandoning your family uh, heritage for following a religion that was not how you were raised. And you continue to share Christ with them and they tell you that if you continue to follow Jesus like this, and if you would dare to raise our grandkids in that church, you can't come here for holidays anymore. And if there's a loss of family relationships or friendships, is that worth the sacrifice? 
for King Jesus and for His kingdom. You see, if Jesus is who He says He is, then as God's people, the perspective that we should have is that I will count all things loss for the sake of Christ. And I believe King Jesus who says, you may have to give up fathers and mothers and houses and jobs, but no, I'm the King. I'm the Lord. And I will restore to you all that you have lost. Because He is God's promised chosen one. This is the good news of the Gospel and the hope that we have that we can look and cling to Christ who is the King and who is coming and who is worth all that we would give for knowing Him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You uh, for the Gospel. We thank You that as sinners we can be made right with God through what You have done for us. We pray and ask now uh, that You would continue to direct our hearts, our allegiance, our loyalty, our dependency upon You, our great God and King. Amen.